What is it? The main thing I got from it was like this sense of feeling seen and validated. Well, why does it have to be this way? This book was placed in my hand for this moment. Insightful, learned a lot, wrote some quotes that I'm ready to like paint on my wall. I love this book! That we just kind of pull out some, some of the big themes that we see and, and talk about a few different ones. I apologize if most of my contribution has K-pop references. Alternative book title, The Feminine Mystique Part 2. You were really just gay all along. <laughs> Welcome to Book Club. With Julia. And Victoria. Those book nerds whose families are entirely convinced they will one day publish a book even though they have never even like started on one or said they were wanting to or thinking about it. They're just, their families are just like, oh, you're, when you write a book someday. Yeah. What book? Like, what book? <laughs> Once you're published, then. <laughs> what? <laughs> Typically, this is a podcast for the books we just can't shut up about. But this week, we're talking about a piece of writing that isn't yet published, mm-hmm. but is very much written. And it's something Julia, in particular, has been talking about for quite some time now. Yeah. Stepping off stage, co-creating the divergent self through autistic digital practice by the one and only Julia Clausen. Me! I wrote it. Yeah, it's your thesis yeah. uh, for your master's in social and cultural anthropology. Julia is going to give us a bit of a summary of her, what she's been thinking about and writing about and researching for many years now. And then we're going to talk a bit about being in neurodivergent and autistic communities, what it's like to conduct research on a very personal topic, as well as balancing the demands of academic writing with also trying to write in your own voice. And I'm just trying to figure out how to sell this episode to someone who's like, I don't want to listen to someone (laughs) talk about their research. I'll just say this. I've had so much fun reading Julia's thesis. I have never once ever (laughs) sat down and read all of someone's thesis. Yeah. Um, Even if they kind of maybe hinted that I could, I was like, no. But I I did really enjoy reading your thesis. And I do think it's really interesting. And for many listeners on our show who've heard us talk about books like Unmasking Autism by Dr. Devin Price, Nobody's Normal by Roy Richard Grinker, Neurotribes by Steve Silberman. Fall Down Seven Times Get Up Eight by Naoki Higashida, mm-hmm. The Rosie Project. Like any of those books, if you remember those episodes, you're like, I did enjoy that conversation. I do think you will enjoy this conversation now. I'm excited. This is me. I This is literally I'm practicing for my thesis defense that I have to do in a week and a half before I can officially pass and graduate. So I haven't started preparing for that yet because I have an exam in three days. So next week. Next week, I'm going to be working on it. But by the time you hear this, hopefully, I will be done. I will have passed. That's really funny. I did not realize this was partially practice. I feel like I'm asking none of the questions that <laughs> your panel will ask you. <laughs> no, but it's really, it's more practice talking about a complex topic that I've been spending all of my time and energy on and learning how to say it in a few sentences, paragraphs, in a few minutes. Yeah, That's really, really hard for me to do and honestly one of the biggest struggles of this project has been narrowing down like what the heck I'm actually saying because this thesis could have gone so many different directions and that's something the people who like helped me read and edit of whom Victoria is one and she did get a shout out in the dedication I was honored So honored. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's me. That's you. I did like a double take. I'm like, that must be another Victoria. No, it's me. 
um, something I talked about with everybody was like, oh, there's this topic. Oh, that would be so interesting if you could spend a whole chapter on that, but you just don't have enough room. So we need to like tighten up maybe like either talk about it, address it fully, or like maybe don't include it. And there's so many different topics I could have like explored instead. Actually, when Victoria saw the very first chat, the very first draft of the very first chapter, her feedback was like, so your writing style is amazing, but like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) You've come so far. (laughs) She's like, I don't think you know. Like, it's not just, it's like, I don't think you know what you're saying. I think you're just putting words together that sound nice. And like, maybe we should figure out what the thesis is, you know? (laughs) And I was like, gosh, dang it. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Anyway, so thank you all for joining. Very quickly, if you'd like to support the show, you can rate, review, and subscribe on any and all podcast platforms. If you follow the book links in the show notes, that will take you to our affiliate page on bookshop.org and buying books on there helps support the show in in very small ways. And then if you want to join the book club, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash book club with JV for a bunch of fun extra content. I'm posting excerpts from my thesis on there, mostly the like interview stories that I did with different people. And some of them are very fun. So if you want to read bits of it. I don't want to post the whole thing, but if you want to read bits of it on there, that'll be on there in the TISM tier. And we've got a bunch of other great stuff. So yeah. Okay. What is your thesis about? What did you write about? As you mentioned, it's called Stepping Off Stage, Co-Creating the Divergent Self Through Autistic Digital Practice. So to break down, that's a bunch of like wordy words that I had to use to try and impress some anthropologists. Stepping off stage is sort of the practice of being able to leave dominant neurotypical culture. Co-creating is just making something with someone rather than on your own. Like we co-create this podcast. Yeah, yeah. But in this case, what you're creating is a new sense of self and a collective sense of self. So like, What does autism mean to me and to us as a group? And then through autistic digital practice. So this is a community organized online that meets in person and online. But there's certain types of conversation and behavior and kind of difficulties that are being navigated that are somewhat particular to this community that I was working with. And so how do those practices help us try and figure out who we are? So that's the title. I conducted what is starting to be called divergent ethnography. So ethnography is the type of research that anthropologists do where you go directly into a community you want to understand, you immerse yourself in it for an extended period of time, and you gather data in the form of experiences and conversations. And so divergent ethnography takes into account like that there are different types of socializing and communicating both for the participants and for me, the researcher. And so we want to offer a wider variety of ways to interact with each other, to participate, to gather data, all that kind of stuff. So I was working with a group of autistic adults in the Seattle area that does kind of a mixture of online, offline group meetings of all shapes and sizes. And a good portion of the participants were diagnosed as adults, particularly the ones who wanted to do one-on-one interviews with me. The majority were diagnosed as adults. So I was, by chance, spending a lot of time with 
Devin Price's sort of masked autism. So, right, um, in that episode and in that book, we talk a lot about how, you know, different layers of identity. So being a woman, being queer, being a person of color, being poor, whatever, different layers of that mean that you are less free to diverge from what's the standard of white male humanity in America. And so there's a type of presentation of autism that is more hidden. And so especially when you're diagnosed as an adult, the way that you experience that identity is very different. And so my original question when I was going into it was like, this is a group organized around self-identification. Right, so I identify as autistic, I relate to autism, I would like to participate in this group. But then how, you know, if anyone can join, what are they assuming, what are they defining autism as? That was my original question. And I did find an answer to that. Um, the main two things were sensory sensitivity and then a feeling of being an outsider in some way, that you're not included in the majority of humanity and you feel othered. So the majority of the stories of people that I talked to all started with, I always knew I was different. So I did find that, but that wasn't really the most interesting thing. <laughs> what, I, what was much more interesting to me, for me to experience and to see was like, there were a bunch of kind of unfinished processes that were happening for individuals and for the group who are, they're sort of actively trying to create and discover who they really are underneath this mask, this neurotypical mask. And that's something you kind of have to do with other people, right? Because yourself is, there's how you feel inside and then there's also how you relate to other people. Those are both aspects of who you are, right? So you got to do both. And discovering you're autistic as an adult is a very disruptive experience. So then trying to learn to socialize as that new self, as you're still discovering who that is, is very jarring and complicated and messy. It's really messy. And a lot of the difficulties that are inherent to autism of like social blindness and sensitivity and difficulties with verbal communication all make that process even harder. It's like this complicated, okay, we have a group organized by and for autistic adults. Amazing. It's also very hard to do. You know, they were all trying to figure out who they are, how they fit in, how to successfully work together. When sometimes you have people with completely opposite needs who somehow have to both feel comfortable in a space at the same time and it's messy and it might never ever be finished so it's not about like having a definitive endpoint of this is what autism is is much less interesting than figuring out what are the processes that are actively creating how autism operates in the world that's what's more interesting like it wasn't like oh i found a an unexpected answer. It was like, oh, I found an answer, but it like wasn't as interesting as I thought it would be. Yeah. And I was much more interested in this other thing. And so being able to kind of pivot and map out something that you felt was even more important that you were kind of like, maybe not surprised by, but like a happy like uncovering, I guess, mm -hmm. in your research. In your thesis, you, you describe this process as like the six common phases of autistic self-actualization. First, can you talk to us, what is self-actualization? And then maybe walk us through those six phases and how they, you've seen them like play out for yourself and people that you've met in this online community. Yeah. So self-actualization is sort of, it's something that everyone goes through. It's 
um, kind of the process of figuring out and solidifying like who you are, both in terms of how you think about yourself and how, how you present yourself and also like how you behave around other people. So who you think you are and who everyone else thinks you are. Normally that happens during puberty, during the kind of coming of age process, young adulthood, etc, etc. For autistic adults, there's actually a lot of parallels with what trans adults describe, particularly if they go through some kind of hormone therapy where they are literally experiencing puberty all over again, where basically you are based on this thing you have identified in yourself and discovered about yourself, you then kind of have to restructure your whole life and your whole sense of self all over again. And particularly in your relationships to other people and your relationship to the world. And, and sometimes, you know, if you're, let's say, diagnosed with autism at like 40, which happened with a lot of the people I was talking to, right? That's normally when you're quite settled in who you are. And so it it can be kind of jarring to suddenly be like, wait, I need to rethink over my entire life. But these six phases are really patterns I noticed in the stories people told me. So when I sat down to do interviews, my first question was, what is your autism story? And the sort of common phases that I observed are First one is searching. It's this general sense that you're different, that something's off. Maybe you feel like something's wrong with you and you can't figure out what it is and everyone else tells you, no, you're fine. Or they just get angry at you for things that you feel like you have no control over, whatever it is. There's some sort of shifting happening that has no name. And then second step is the uncovering. My first name for it was the apocalypse. <laughs> and because apocalypse literally means like a dramatic uncovering, but it also carries the weight of like world shattering information. But I wanted all the titles to be ing verbs. So I changed it. But <laughs> they need to match. We need a parallel list. Love a parallel list. <laughs> <laughs> the uncovering is sort of the, some sort of event where it is suddenly revealed, where, where autism sort of lands in your life like a bomb. And for a lot of people, it was through a very traumatic event. So maybe it was COVID-19. Like getting COVID or like being in lockdown or all of it? Typically the isolation piece. Mm. For some, it was some kind of burnout or meltdown. For me, it was technically the very first sort of truth bomb of it was a phone call with one of my best friends who was having a really, really hard time. And we were both crying on the phone. And they were like, do you think we could be autistic? And I was like, no, what are you talking about right now? <laughs> LOL. <laughs> we both are. But the, so that sort of planted that seed in my head that started me reframing everything in my life, even though I didn't want to. It was sort of against my will. It was like once the idea was there, I couldn't get rid of it. Yeah. So for some people, it can be good and it can be kind of revelatory. For some people, it's like a disaster. And then the third process is naming. The uncovering is when autism appears in your life as an idea, but naming is when you finally take on the name for yourself, because that's a very different thing. The first time I heard about, oh, do you think you might be autistic? And the time I actually started calling myself that, 
was a long time. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the exact timeline. Would have been like six months at least? Longer? I think so. Because it was like August to January yeah. kind of. Of like doing a ton of research and talking with my therapist and doing a whole diagnostic to finally say, okay, I am autistic. This is something I'm now taking on myself, which is a very different thing, right? And once you start saying to yourself even, and then particularly to other people, there's kind of a coming out process in a way that drastically changes how you feel about yourself and how you interpret your experiences and how people perceive you. There's a lot happening. And so then phase number four is reframing, where once you've taken on that name, you look back in your past and you're like, oh my God, that's what that was? Where you like, suddenly everything starts to make sense and you start filtering all these experiences that you had no way of understanding through this new lens that suddenly puts all the puzzle pieces together. And you're like, holy shit, that was an autism thing. That's why I did that. Or that's why that didn't make sense. Or that's why people were mad at me or whatever. And it's things that you just sort of brushed off because you couldn't explain it, but it just like you didn't have time to dwell on it. And so you're sort of putting yourself in a totally new context and rewriting your whole past. And that takes a while. I feel like that was a good, I don't know, year of my life at least and talking to my parents and my friends and like, you know, kind of rephrasing everything. So then the fifth stage is the self-constructing piece where, okay, we've reconfigured, we've reinterpreted the past. Now we understand why we are the way we are. Now we got to figure out how to exist in the world now. For me, it was like, okay, I now understand why I have these kind of conflicts with people or why people perceive me in a certain way. And I now understand why I have such a hard time with this, this, and this, and why I'm so incredibly sensitive and why I cry twice a year. And like <laughs> all, the, all these different things. The why biannual cry. <laughs> my annual cry. Because I was like turning, I, because I was so sensitive, I was turning all of my feelings off mm -hmm. until I was burnt out. And then it would just sort of explode out of me. And then I would be out of commission for a week. So I know that that's why I'm like that now. So how do I learn to pay attention to my feelings as they're happening and learn to interpret and communicate them? How do I get ahead of the conflicts that I have? And I feel incredibly lucky to have had you and Rebecca and Natasha as my roommates because you guys were very receptive, even if it was hard for you, where I was like, hey, if you don't want to be talking to me about this and you want to go to bed, you're going to have to tell me. And that, <laughs> that was very, very hard for you. Victoria <laughs> is the least confrontational person. Like, I don't want to upset you. And you're like, I will literally just keep talking until the sun rises yeah. and I won't notice that you're trying to go to sleep. <laughs> I'm like, got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Okay. So if you want to go to bed, I will happily stop talking, but you have to tell me that it's time to go to bed. Or if, like, we have a thing now where if Victoria needs a hug, she just asks me because mm -hmm. I'm not going to initiate contact. But sometimes she needs hugs and I'm happy to oblige. That happened a lot um, during COVID, but I would always be the one up latest and so it would be, like, dark and I'd be watching TV and Victoria would come down and just kind of stand in the hallway and be like, can I have a hug? <laughs> it was so sweet. I was like, oh, this is what friendship is about. Proper communication. So we all get what we need. Yeah. So it's that kind of stuff. 
And then finally, the sixth stage is the imagining the future stage, right? So, okay, I've, I've learned how to be myself and to take care of myself more, then how do I create a life for myself where I can actually imagine existing and being happy for years and years and years? Because for, for so many masked autistic people, they're really either, they're just in survival mode, so they just can't think about the future. Or I think even for me, I had a really hard time imagining it because I just, continuing to exist the way that I was just felt completely untenable. I was like, I don't think I can do this forever. Like if I would think about having to be an adult in an office job for the next 40 years of my life, I think I would have just quit everything and run away to the woods. Like I, it didn't feel possible. And that was something that a lot of people expressed was like, like how do people do this? I don't think I can keep doing this. And it can get very dark. Um, I feel like what I've been doing the last two years since I've been in grad school has been putting together the kind of life that I think I could actually live in long term and be happy with and starting to imagine real possibilities of like, oh, I think I could actually, this is something I would want to do in the future. I think I could actually do this, setting up sort of self-care routines, hygiene routines, socialization routines, work routines, whatever it is, sort of putting together, it can, I mean, even something as simple as like how you wash your face, like putting together a new system that is something that you feel like you can do every day. So you can actually wash your face every day, you know, or whatever it may be. Something really simple allows you to feel like you have a future for the first time honestly got a lot of inspiration from the people that I was talking to who had been diagnosed a lot longer than me and kind of seeing um, what kind of lives they were building. And they were all vastly different. And it, so it was very cool. Yeah, I can, like, it's heartbreaking, but understandable to see, like, if, if life has been really difficult and the world has been very othering, to imagine what your life is like in 40, 50, 60, 80 years is difficult to do. Yeah. And makes it really important then to continue to build communities where people can share ex experiences and like watch people older than them, like live mm -hmm. fulfilling lives who have like been able to construct themselves and, and imagine a future and kind of have that like example of hope for someone who maybe is still in that kind of apocalypse phase or right after that, yeah. who are still feeling like my world is shattering. Yeah, I mean, being able to imagine a future is a privilege. I mean, this is something that a lot of writers and thinkers related to intersectionality and race and queer theory and all kinds of stuff have written about in extensive detail. So I'm, you know, sort of disability writers who are just applying that to disability. <laughs> You mentioned that this online and in-person community that you were part of, uh, you write how it was kind of like nothing you'd seen before. It was very different than maybe the autistic spaces that you were involved with prior to your research. So I'd love to hear more what that experience was for you joining such like a large, relatively established community by and for autistic adults. Yeah, it was fascinating because I've got my like two best friends who are autistic and I went through the phase where like I was following all the accounts and 
reading all the books and watching all the shows and just absorbing all the information I could. And so I have my individual relationships with two people. And then I have my distant observational relationships of just absorbing information. But I realized I'd never been in an actual community. It was funny because I thought it would be really easy. Mm. And this is part of what I think ended up shaping the discoveries that I made was like big groups are hard no matter what. And like the difficulties of socializing in a group don't just disappear because it's an autistic group. And in fact, some things actually become more difficult because it's organized mm -hmm. by autistic people because we all have a harder time. Everyone there is less competent <laughs> at social interaction. It was a little overwhelming at first to like meet so many new people and feel all this pressure to like make connections in order to be able to interview people. But the realization that I had was when you get a bunch of autistic people together, they don't suddenly stop being autistic, but we can create space to be autistic. Meaning that like for me, interacting with a, with a big group didn't stop being hard but it was okay for me to say out loud, this is very hard, I'm very exhausted, can I turn off my camera and just listen? And I'm like, oh yeah, sure, that's fine. If you wanna type in the chat, we'll read your stuff and you can participate that way and you can leave whenever you want, like who cares? It wasn't considered rude to have a different way of participating. There was, permission to be bad at socializing and there were accommodations available to work around it. It, it made me realize something about accommodations too, which like accommodations are not to make you seem normal, right? It's not like, what do we provide you so that you can be a quote unquote normal person? It's just, how do we make this space different so you can just be yourself? Mm -hmm. Even if being yourself is like weird and clunky and whatever, that was kind of amazing. But it also creates some difficulties because when everyone is showing up as their full selves, but maybe they're in some of those earlier phases where they're still in a really volatile relationship with their identity and they don't yet know how to talk to people and they're not yet used to being themselves and maybe they've still got some trauma that's that's easily triggered and whatever or maybe they have a lot of needs related to communication which means that they need to interact in a very slow pace so then the whole group has to slow down in order to interact with them whereas other people maybe have difficulty with auditory processing and get distracted really easily and can't follow along if the conversation's that slow like it starts to get messy, like I talked about earlier, when you're trying to create a space where everyone can show up as themselves. And that doesn't mean that that's a bad project, that it's a bad idea. It just means that it's not some kind of utopia where suddenly everything's fixed because you're interacting with people who are just like you. Because actually, autism, the, uh, the, the, the two things I talked about, right? Sensory sensitivities and feeling different. Those are the only two things that everyone had in common. <laughs> because you had such a wide variety of people in this space with different experiences and beliefs. There were people from age like 18 to 80. Like the, ra the range of life experience and assumptions and language, vast. Okay. And so this is a group of people who have to 
not only learn how to talk to people at all, but they have to learn how to talk to this really eclectic group and constantly navigating different sticky points for different people that you may not expect because they're different from yours. Honestly, as challenging of a project as that can be, it really, to me, is a kind of model for what I think all human groups and interactions should be like. You know what I mean? When when you leave room for people to show up as themselves, you're sort of allowing for, like, I'm going to interact with something that's difficult for me today, or that's very different and uh, something I don't, I'm going to interact with something I don't understand today. And I am then going to have to absorb it and process it and figure out how it integrates into my understanding of the world and try and get along with this person because we have something that unites us and we need to stick together. And it's a really, I don't know, it's really cool. It's really cool, but it it's not like some sort of magical, perfect place where everything just goes very smoothly. The point of this is that you are able to encounter those difficulties with a sense of we're all bad at this no one really knows what they're doing so you can make mistakes and we'll call it out and we'll address it and we'll learn together it's interesting hearing you talk more about your thesis because i feel like while we were talking about it originally and while you were writing and while i was reading it i was really thinking and focusing in on this autistic community that you were describing and maybe Mm. what it might mean or say about other spaces by and for autistic adults but the more i hear you talk about it now it's making me think even more kind of like you've drawn these parallels of like this can be helpful in a lot of spaces and a lot of disability spaces a lot of like just general spaces where we're united about something together. And I think specifically spaces where we're united about what we are not, if that makes sense. So it makes me think of like spaces for like women and non-binary folks or just non-cis men spaces. Yeah. (laughs) And and recognizing that like, okay, maybe we're in conversation with each other because we're talking about our lived experiences or our interests or whatever, but it's so so broad Mm. and there's so many different needs in that and then to think of again of those intersectionality elements like i was also thinking of how as a neurotypical when i'm thinking about spaces or when i see someone creating a space for let's say specifically autistic people and i'm like okay i know a few things that like my friends might need so yeah this space has like sensory it's sensory sensitive like the lights are dim it's like quiet it's there's no music in the background the lights aren't flashing but that actually may not be the best space for every autistic person like we're not going to just like generalize and say every autistic person should come shopping here at 8 a.m because this is Mm. our time for and it's like well my autistic friend isn't going to get up to go shopping at 8 a.m and also another autistic friend (laughs) may be like overwhelmed by how quiet it is you know like it's It's not to say we shouldn't have efforts to create spaces that accommodate more and more people, but not thinking that there's a one-size-fit-all solution for any group. And whether it comes in accommodations in like a a larger, more public setting or in a – exclusive is not quite the term I'm looking for, but more like, yeah, exclusive community group like you're talking about. And how much there is to like think about and consider that, yeah, creating any sort of community space – is going to be messy. And I think it's a really big insight to keep in mind. Like you were saying that it it didn't end up being this like autistic utopia of like (laughs) everyone here is the same as me. And so everyone knows exactly what I need and I'm immediately comfortable. Um, But recognizing that like there's just some things that are going to be difficult in a large group setting always. But like how 
important it was for this group and your experience in this group to make it as just acknowledging, I feel like seems like it went a long way, acknowledging the kind of space they want to be and acknowledging that not everyone is going to like every single event and group and meeting that they offer, but maybe they'll find like things they like about some of them. Okay, so last year on the podcast, you brought your friend Katie on uh, the show, and she's also in the same master's program as you. Mm -hmm. And you both chatted about the academic writing, um, kind of its challenges, its limitations. You were both kind of critical of how complex and maybe out of reach so much of academic writing can be for not only general audiences, but even like people who are new to the field, who are like just trying to get their feet under them. How did you navigate this in your own writing? So academic writing and particularly anthropology writing, there's a few components of why it's so dang difficult. Obviously, there's, you know, the more into a specialization you get, the more there's just going to be shared terminology that's unique to that group that's very hard to translate outside. That's kind of true of any social group, you know, that's not that surprising. It reminds me of like layers too. Like you and I have a deep friendship that I can just reference a thing and you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I don't have to describe the whole story again for you to like understand what I'm referencing and then like understand why it connects to what we're talking about. Yeah. And so like a lot of those shortcuts like make sense. And I think about that a lot when I was reading your piece where I'm like, I don't quite get what you're saying here because I don't know those layers of anthropological inside jokes. (laughs) Not jokes, but like insider baseball knowledge kind of. Yeah, inside jokes is a great sort of way of describing that. Absolutely. Yeah, they're inside jokes, but they're not jokes because anthropologists don't joke and it's very frustrating. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But there is a certain... I think it's particularly bad with anthropology, but I see it in a lot of departments. There is a certain anxiety in each academic discipline, but particularly with anthropology, because anthropology, you know, was sort of created in a colonial environment for a colonial purpose. That's where it started, right? So anthropology has been constantly redefining and reshaping itself. And it has shared a lot of its methods. So the method of ethnography is now something that a lot of disciplines in the social sciences use now. There are now psychologists who do ethnography. I read some of it for my thesis. Like the lines around what is anthropology are getting increasingly blurred. There is an anxiety inherent in a lot of anthropological writing that if they don't follow certain things, if they don't make it inaccessible enough and specific enough, anthropology will no longer matter and will no longer exist. And so what drives me absolutely bonkers is that one of the things that defines anthropological writing is that you reference other anthropologists. I mean, on some level, sure, but like they take it to such an extreme that it becomes this kind of circle jerk almost where it becomes this, <laughs> this thing where everyone's just sort of congratulating each other and saying, wow, you did such a good job, uh, not making anything new and not making anything that is at all understandable or interesting to anyone who is not those like 12 people. And it's exhausting because it's so hard to get into It's so highly specific and it's so highly referential. In order to read one text of anthropology and understand the whole thing, you have to have already read 12 others. 
And then in order to understand those 12 others, you have to have read 12 more. It's like an infinitely exponential black hole of self-referential knowledge that you just like, you just have to start somewhere and not understand what's happening. And I hate it. I hate it so much because it is so incredibly limiting and it makes anthropological writing it's some of my least favorite academic writing in the world. It's so boring. And it's so disappointing because it's like anthropology as an idea and the ideas that they talk about like when we're in class are some of the most fascinating things you've ever heard, right? Because you're learning about how people operate in different parts of the world in different little niches. And it's so fascinating. And then they turn it into this gobbledygook in order to retain a hold on their position as academics, as anthropologists, as a field in and of itself. And the anthropologists that I have us read for this podcast are some of the few exceptions. And often it's because either um, Nobody's Normal was specifically written for a general public audience. So it reads very differently from Grinker's like journals which I have also read some. And then two, we read a fair amount of David Graeber and he is like the only readable, enjoyable anthropology is by people like David Graeber who are self-proclaimed activist anthropologists or anarchist anthropologists who are trying to actively dismantle the academic system that they're participating in and trying to make change through their work. I was so blown away when I learned that. I was like, are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> like I read this one journal article that I was like, wow, this was so enjoyable. This was so fascinating. And I got to the end and they were talking about how, yeah, I guess I'm an anarchist. And I was like, what? <sighs> so all that to say, when I was writing, I was actively trying not to write like that. When I finished my first draft and I was showing it to my friend Katie and who's much more steeped in anthropology than me, we sort of realized that I had written it for the general public or mostly for the people that I had interviewed. I was writing it for them. Hmm. People who understood the autism world, but not necessarily the anthropology and were interested in some definitive conclusions. And what my friend said was like, I think this is highly publishable for a general public. I think you would have to make an argument as to why this is anthropology writing. Like the work you did was anthropology, but the writing itself is kind of on the fence. And so in my final draft, I had to change a lot about the style, not about the content, but about the style and the types of terms I was using and who I was referencing and the tense that I used and qualifying all my arguments and all this kind of stuff because I want to pass and get my degree. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, I will suck it up and change the style a little bit and make it slightly less me and less what I want in order to get the thing that I want. But I'm not going to completely change it. I'm not going to completely compromise it, but I am going to adjust. Yeah, I found it interesting because I read both versions. Yeah. And... I didn't catch it until you said it now, but yeah, I do think the first was really geared more towards your interviewees. And I think mm -hmm. some of my feedback initially, I mean, I did not have the insight to give feedback like Katie can on the anthropology side, but was the, can you like draw this conclusion more clearly for me? Like as yeah. a non-autistic person reading this, I'm not quite seeing the connection between this example and what you say you are discussing in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But saying you wrote it for your interviewees, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, that totally makes sense. 
Okay, so wrapping up our discussion a bit, what do you see as like the key takeaways from your thesis? Yeah, for others in my field, I'm kind of just hoping to demonstrate that this kind of divergent ethnography is very feasible and very doable and is a good idea. I think for the general reader, there's a a sort of list of things. So number one, something that's actually come up in the personal lives of friends since I've written this paper is that being autistic does not excuse all behavior and does not mean you're incapable of being an asshole or that you're (laughs) incapable of being held accountable for your actions. Even if you don't speak with your voice, even if you're talking with a chat pad, You can still be a dick. I am an equal opportunist. We can all be bad people. (laughs) Because we're still people. And we're still absorbing some potentially harmful ideas. And we're still being traumatized and maybe not building some unhealthy coping mechanisms and like biases and all that kind of stuff. We still have those. Being autistic does not mean that you are free from criticism or from constructive criticism. I mean, it doesn't mean that you have the right to say whatever you want in any context. There are limits. There just should be fewer than what neurotypical society proposes. But there are still, we still want everyone to feel welcome. We just have to learn how to navigate it more directly, uh, those differences. Yeah, that's one that I, is something I feel like I should emphasize for the world. (laughs) that's particularly true for autistic men by the way you are not allowed to say whatever you want don't be elon musk (laughs) number two this is more for neurotypical people if an autistic person tells you show has a ton of enthusiasm and hands you a piece of information potentially completely out of context or you've never heard them talk about it before and they seem very excited about this thing and they hand you this information You don't have to be equally excited. What they're looking for is for you to provide a somewhat related, maybe, piece of information that is equally exciting to you and give it back. You're doing this little trade system, a kind of mutual gift exchange of fun facts. I know that this is a thing that I've been allowed to do for the entirety of our friendship, but I feel like I have even more permission to send you all my fun facts. Like. I'm so excited. I'm just going to be tapping, tapping away on WhatsApp with like, I learned this new thing about a building in my neighborhood. (laughs) I'm so excited. I really can't wait. All my walks with friends lately have been me stopping to be like, can I tell you a fun fact about this building? And they're like, sure. (laughs) Sometimes they're really excited. Other times they're like, okay. The episode won't come out until August, but I had a chance to be a guest on a friend's podcast where I just got to talk about skyscrapers for an hour and it was so fun. I'm very happy for you. Yes. And I'm finally catching up and I will pledge to do better at acknowledging Julia's K-pop excitement when she sends it my way. (laughs) I wanted to bury my head in the sand when I realized there was a song I really liked and Julia had shared it with me like at least three times already, but it like finally clicked when I listened to it on our shared Spotify blend. Mm Mm-hmm. Julie got my real-time reaction of me realizing, it dawning on me, oh no, you've already sent this to me, haven't you? Oh no, you actually played this for me while we were sitting in the same room the other week, right? Oh, okay. Twice. <laughs> I'm like, I really like this song. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. Anyways, I like this takeaway. I will be taking it away. I will be holding it close to my heart. Offer something in return. That's re- it's We're really very, very simple creatures. It's really that simple. You don't even have to care about the thing that they're excited about. You just (laughs) have to like be equally excited 
about something somewhat related or at a totally different date, bring something that you are also excited about to the friendship and they will know that they've made it and that they are now your friend. Okay, so something for kind of everybody, I think just a reminder that like identity and norms, sort of regular practices that feel like they're required but maybe are not said out loud. And the way that we interact with each other, right? How we feel about ourselves, how we interact with each other. These are constantly evolving processes that never stop. Um, Just like language, right? It's never fixed. So it's important that we do the difficult work of like navigating the tricky social situations and continue to get to know ourselves in new environments and, and allow ourselves and the people around us and our environments to change. It can be stressful and and kind of terrifying, that thought, but it's also encouraging because it's a reminder that if like things are really bad or really hard, they by definition will not be that way forever. You will not feel this way about yourself forever. This situation will not be this way forever. So making small choices of learning to adapt to new things, learning to understand yourself better, whatever. This is a very important lesson for autistic people, but I think it's really something that everyone could stand to remember is that like, Allow yourself and the people around you and your own world to continue to evolve and change. And it's a slow process, but it's constant. I think sort of connected to that is I realized I'd never interacted with sort of quote unquote autistic elders, people who had been diagnosed for like 10, 15 years, who were much older, who were much more settled in their identity and who had seen the definition of autism and the social experience of autism change drastically in the last like decade. Listening to them talk and listening to how they have put together these really often very unusual lives, it was really encouraging and a nice reminder of like, again, it's not always going to be this way and that autistic people are highly adaptable and we don't feel that way, but we are because like we are made to adapt more than anyone else. And the fact that we're still here means that we've adapted quite a bit and that we have something very unique to bring to the world. And so like, yeah, that was a big part of just imagining what my future could be like, honestly. Felt like there was some encouragement that I wanted to give other people. Thanks for sharing and thanks for inviting me along to think about this stuff with you and read it. I did feel even, you know, you mentioned how often in anthropological writing, there's a lot of internal references and whatnot. And while I didn't get all the anthropological ones, I did love that I knew so many of the like source references for a lot of the ideas around just like autism history and anthropology of autism and like uh, unmasking autism, like based off so many books that we've read together here for the podcast. So it was like really enjoyable to be like, oh, I know what's being referenced here. Yeah. Or, oh, I I understand this concept the way you described it. And I specifically know this source that you got this concept from. How fun. Mm. And I look forward to reading more, um, which transitions into our currently obsessed section. Mm. Right now, I'm reading The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Rengro. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about it on the podcast eventually, but it, it is a tome. So yeah, chipping away at that. Other things that are bringing me joy right now, I have been just harboring some serious dad vibes around the house. <laughs> I walked around with a screwdriver yesterday, tightening things. <laughs> we have like this kitchen cupboard that like the door hangs ajar. Uh-huh. And I was like, you know what? I can just tighten this right here. Look at that. I was watching plumbing videos yesterday because we keep 
clogging our drains and they smell bad. The perks of living in a very old building. So um, that's what's giving me joy lately. Oh, and we hung up some posters in our bedroom. We've had this like stack of things that we wanted to hang up around the house that are just like not refined. <laughs> it's not art. It's not yeah. like a cool frame that I painted or anything. It's just like a poster I stole from a concert venue a movie theater poster Rune got that also heavily advertises IMAX and a <laughs> pride flag we got from a Chicago fire game that has a giant Chicago fire, which is our like uh, major league soccer here in Chicago uh-huh. symbol on it, um, which is like, I love a pride flag. Not a, the biggest fan of Chicago fire, nothing against them, just not yeah. huge fan. But anyways, we we hung up all these things in our bedroom because we we're like, dang it, we just want to hang these up. Doesn't have to be fancy art. Part of embracing an autistic identity is just embracing the cringe. It's sort of questioning what it means to be an adult. It's like, oh, well, adults aren't supposed to put movie posters on their wall. Who cares? (laughs) Hang the movie poster. If it brings you joy, put it on your wall. Yeah. Who cares? And if you hate it and you care, well, then you can change it. Exactly. What's bringing you joy these days? First things first, today, it has been so hot here in Belgium. And of course, Belgians are morally opposed to air conditioning. So I, and my brain does not work very well in the heat. It just shuts down. And doing exams in that environment has been very challenging. And today, I discovered that the sort of family-owned Filipino cafe has air conditioning And I just about cried. I was like, this is going to save my life this summer. I'm going to live here. I'm going to move in. They have food. They have Wi-Fi. They have cake. They have coffee. And they have air conditioning. Everything you need. It's everything you need. The five essentials to human life. The five essentials to human life. (laughs) So shout out to Sibs. I am forever in your debt. I also, I had an exam a week ago. And that night, my friend and I went to see the new... Spider-Verse movie. I think it's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, but I could be wrong. There's so many Spider-Verses now. I think, yeah, it's Across the Spider-Verse. Across the Spider-Verse. Okay. The new animated one, which turns out is only a part one. So be warned, it ends in the middle of the story. (laughs) There's going to be a part two. (laughs) Who knows when? I mean, it has its own narrative arc, but it doesn't resolve all the big picture conflicts, basically. But wow, it was so good. It really blows all Marvel movies out of the water. The way that they're able to give a different animation style that's distinctive and has its own color scheme and whatever to every single character is so impressive and so gorgeous. And I love the music and it's so funny. It's so, 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 so funny. The whole thing, the whole thing's great. Go see it. Thank you for listening to Book Club with Julia and Victoria. We would love to hear your thoughts on this book or the topic we discussed. So you can share your review and recommendations with us on Instagram at bookclubwithjv, on our website, bookclubwithjv.com, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit our website for show notes with links to all of the recommendations and the things bringing us joy. If you don't already, go ahead and follow us on whichever podcast platform you are listening on so that you can be notified when our next episode is released. This episode was co-hosted and produced by myself, Victoria Brewer, along with Julia Clausen. Rebecca Gasney provides us with project management support, our music is composed by Greg Burek, and our logo was designed by Gabby Fabland. Until next time, happy reading.